welcome to today's episode of the Uncorked Corner podcast. We are excited to invite our friends Olga and Barnaby from Teutonic Wine Company to join us in the podcast today. Before we get started, can we have you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about how you got into this space? Olga? <laughs> well, hello there. I'm Olga Tuttle, and I got into this space of making wine with my husband because of my husband. So I think... He should probably start off on how he got on this wild journey. All right. Hi, I'm Barnaby Tuttle. Um, I'm Olga's husband, also winemaker at Teutonic Wine Company. Um, grew up in Portland. I've had a lot of different jobs. I've worked in restaurants. I've been an iron worker, an auto wrecker, and uh, basically woke up one day and decided I want to make wine. Told Olga that, and it's been a slow but crazy avalanche ever since. There Absolutely. were a few other things that happened. Like, along that's like two or three other things that <laughs> happened. Very boiled down version, but that's okay. It did kind of happen like that. Yeah, and I understand uh, there was, you know, a big career switch. You kind of got into this year and you've done some different things. Talk to me about that a little bit. You know, when you decided you started getting into the wines and exploring that, what made you decide to pursue this as a career? Well, it, it the career change started with a different career change. I had been doing blue collar work. Um, Worked at Oregon Ironworks. And then I want to give a shout out to my friends at Wildcat Auto Wrecking because I was working there. It's all like pre like 1980 Dodge Chrysler Plymouths. I've driven mostly early 60s cars for the most, most of my life anyway. And I decided I wanted to pocket some money and travel. So I started waiting tables at a restaurant and they basically nudged me to taking wine classes. They're like, you're a good server, but you know what? Your wine knowledge is rough. And I was pretty bummed out. I really thought it was going to be a bunch of pretentious, snobby people. And, you know, everybody swirling glasses and talking about the strawberries and cigar and, you know, pencil shavings. I went to the wine class and it was blind, silent. And it blew my mind. It tore my head off. The second class introduced me to the idea of terroir, which to this day is one of my favorite things in the world. And it just means that wine tastes like the place it's grown. And so that just, I, when I get interested in something, I become very fixated and I became extremely fixated on wine, meeting every winemaker I could, taking notes, drinking wines, planning my weekends around which wines I was going to drink, you know, kind of arm, you could travel the world by going to your wine shop and buying wines for some exotic country and drinking those wines and reading about the place. And anyway, a year later, I became the wine buyer at that restaurant. And I called in a German importer named Ewald Mosler. He came in, I don't know, he had 14 Mosel Rieslings in his bag. I tasted and I bought every one. And I came home that night and said, Olga, I'm going to have to quit my job and learn to do that. And it happened. It wasn't like overnight I quit my job, but we had the opportunity through our great friend Gisela Green to plant a vineyard on her property. We did that. And one foot in front of the other, the next thing you know, it was 2008. And we made our first 120 cases. That's amazing. It's serendipity, right? Just all lines really up the way is. it's supposed to. <laughs> it's like surfing the internet of life. Well, it's obvious that you are very passionate about it. And I think that that's clear from the variety that you have as well. It's, um, you know, it's it's one thing to make one wine, but it's another to really put your heart and soul into having like this really nice variety. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to create the variety that you do have and how you were able to kind of go from creating your first wine to really moving into other types of grapes and, and wine varietals? Sure. So, you know, you know, the, you know, if I was a writer, I'd be expressing myself through words or if I tell my band, it would be music. So this is my personal expression and what I want to communicate and say. And uh, to digress, early Oregon wine history was dominated by a French story. And that's a great story. And, you know, looking to Burgundy and the Loire Valley, and these are amazing wines but the world has countless stories. And 
we already had through this importer, Eval Mosler, a connection to German wines. And they're a little more difficult to sell, they're a little less common, but I found it, you know, a really interesting, compelling way of looking at things. And just so, you know, in a nutshell to me, German wine is one, grapes that grow in Germany, two, focused, precise winemaking, lower alcohol, very fresh, bright, acid-driven food wines. And knowing Ewald, having these connections, going to Germany, learning from great wineries, it gave me the opportunity when I came back to be part of the Oregon wine community, but, you know, playing my instrument or telling my story with a different flavor. And, and that's why we chose to do the German thing. German grapes, Pinot Noir, very common in Germany for a thousand years, but it's called Spätburgunder. So in Germany, it's not Pinot Noir, it's Spätburgunder. Pinot Gris, or as they call it in Germany, Grauburgunder. Pinot Blanc, um, Weißburgunder. Weißburgunder. Um, Riesling. <laughs> yeah, Riesling, it's the same. And it, Pinot Meunier is in Germany. So we're just taking grapes that exist in Germany, looking for the coldest, highest elevation vineyard sites to reproduce the long, slow ripening, the lower alcohol, the fresh acidity. When you were doing the exploring and learning how to make that German wines, what was your favorite experience as part of that, you know, favorite place you got to travel to? Uh, anything along those lines? Just human interaction, meeting cool people that aren't like me. The hardest we did. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so steep. You know, you have to hold your bucket between your legs because you can't, bucket will fall when it's this steep. But the people we met there, dear friends, good friends, people that, you know, speak a different language and grew up in a different world. And it's just, you know, finding your own humanity through finding humanity and people that aren't like you. And, and the, the vineyards food... are so important to them. Sorry to interrupt. But, go ahead. Um, but that harvest, I just wanted to uh, backtrack a little bit. Like the whole town helps harvest. Like the kids, they don't go to school for two weeks. So they're out there with their moms and dads and grandparents just harvesting grapes. And it becomes like this whole communal thing. Mm -hmm. And so many families own just even small plots of grapes and they make wine just for the family. Um, some of them are for a business, but many, many households make wine just because of tradition. So it's really fun to be with them and try their wines. Absolutely. That's a, definitely a cool thing to experience as well. It's completely different than a lot of, you know, things we have here. It's, you don't mm -hmm. find that as those regional sort of things that everyone in that whole area really is all in on around here as much. Right. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about these wines now. I know we have three here and you can take us through them as well, but we have the Gurtstraminer, which I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I might not mm -hmm. be the Riesling and the Merlot. So talk to me us about those three wines here. Take us through, you know, as you would a tasting in what order, first of all, would you do this? And then uh, take us through these sausage pairings that we have here as well. Sure. So I'll do the wines. Olga can do the sausages. Oh God, I don't know anything about the sausages. <laughs> we'll pretend just like <laughs> they can't see us. Yeah, everybody, we were like super like we're wearing chef hats. We know everything about these sausages. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'll I'll do the wines and then Olga can uh, read what the sausages are. And um, um anyway, so the first one is the Wallstrom Riesling. This is or was our friend's vineyard. We farmed it. In fact, Olga and I planted these Rieslings. It is on a 50% slope, all rock. It was a formal gravel, former gravel mine. We had to plant this vineyard using a jackhammer. And Olga and Annie were out there helping me on the cliffs, carrying the 300-pound generator for the jackhammer so we could get the plants in the ground. And that ties into what I love about Riesling. Riesling, to me... Riesling and Pinot Noir are the number one terroir grapes. There's so much mineral. There's so many earthy flavors buried under the fruit, the bouquet of this Riesling. You're going to find really amazing acid, which will help cut through the fat and the spice of the sausage or salami. And it's a 2019, and it's a relatively dry Riesling. And he added his love. Yeah. What's a sausage? 
or salami? Well, the first one here is a chorizo Rioja. Um, but what I'd like, what I do know is the people that make it and they're really great. And it's a big Greek family, kind of like my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> um, they live here in Portland and they own three restaurants and then they have this, um, you know, their charcuterie, I think is distributed nationwide. Yeah, and they're just the nicest people. And we've worked with them for many, many years. And our wines, like Barnaby was saying, go so well with salty, fatty foods. So we thought it'd be fun to taste the wines with a salumi. Yeah, the salumi. Um, Eli, their salumist, is the best anywhere. I will, I've had a lot of salumi all over the world. And this is my favorite. And what Olga says about the wines pairing with this, I call my wines butcher block wines. My wines, charcuterie, wild game, pate, rustic, home cooking. You know, there's a whole lot of acid to cut through the fat and just enough sweetness that the wine's pleasant to drink. And I just took a sip of the Riesling after taking a bite of the salumi. Mm -hmm. And it also has a little bit of saline touch to it. Oh, the, from the mineral, really the salinity, absolutely. Yeah. I've gotten mm. to try both of these now. So I started off having the uh, the wine, the Riesling, to start to taste that absolutely delicious wine. Definitely a very drinkable one, uh, as you were saying. And then I paired it up. I did the Trezo Rioja to start off here. And then once you had that, put them together, it's a completely different experience. But they work It's a happy well. explosion, huh? Yeah. It's great. My... Else? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. My favorite of the three wines... I love, they're all very good. My favorite was the Gortz Traminer. And I think what's interesting is I don't drink that a lot, but I really enjoy it when I do. And I actually paired it with the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but the Finocchiona. And I loved that one. That was my favorite. I think what surprised me the most actually about the um, sausage was that I'm expecting it to be like, that's really hard. Like I, I'm, you know, sometimes you get charcuterie sausage and it's like harder and it's harder to like eat it. But when you eat it, it's funny. It's like, it feels like it's very firm, but it like melts in your mouth. It's so good. It's moist. Yes. yes. Absolutely. And with the wine, it's like, even just like the mouthfeel is really nice. So um, the interaction with delicious. the spice and the saltiness and the fat, it's very nice. Very nice. That's and a I'm going to point now. out in the Riesling. One last thing, and you know what? Um, this is not going to be a normal wine tasting, but this Riesling, think about like the smell of like a vinyl beach ball in the wine. It's it's not a whole lot or a shower curtain or a pool toy. Do you get that a little bit? I do get that a little bit. Yeah, I never would have pegged that without you suggesting it, but absolutely. And it's like a super food friendly smell. I'm just using the closest thing I can, you know, use to connect you to what I'm thinking about. But that's very typical to Willamette Valley Riesling. Riesling in general is a very complicated grapes. And a lot, of, a lot of times in Germany, they'll say, oh, like diesel or suntan lotion. But it always has this kind of like menthol-y, I can't explain it, but I love it very much. Mm. Perfect. So, nice let's jump into the Gewurztraminer next to talk about that one. I haven't tried this one yet. I'm about to take my first sip now. Mm. So take I already us teased this it. One sorry. <laughs> it's one of my favorites too. I think it's kind of underrated and nobody really thinks about it or they think it's like something your grandma would drink. I think it's hard to pronounce for one thing and people don't want to say it. Um, and it does have this aromatics, but if you can get past the fact that it is a little bit on the sweeter side, usually, not always, you can have a bone dry Gewurztraminer, but it does pair so beautifully with salty, fatty foods. And I think more, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, I don't think I like it. Same with Riesling, it's too sweet. And then they try it and then they end up really falling in love with it. And I, yes. And, and I, this, this wine is special because of the vineyard. This is some of the best Gewurztraminer in Oregon. Yeah. Super old vines are like 40 something years old. They don't produce a whole lot of fruit. Mm -hmm. So it's super concentrated and just gorgeous. High elevation. They struggle super hard. 
In fact, we didn't get any this year or last year because of what a struggle these plants have. They got frosted and nothing happened. Yeah, but what it does ripen is the best. Yep, yep. You know, what happens is, is there's like a bloom, an early bloom, and then there's a late frost and all the buds freeze off and then that's it for the growing season. You won't get any fruit there. So it's really sad when it happens. Mm. Interestingly enough with this one too, when I taste it and when I smell it, what this reminds me of is a lot of uh, sakis that I've actually tried. Mm. Interestingly oh, enough. I love sake. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that's real nice. You know what it is? It might even be a more of the texture thing. But the texture mm -hmm. seems similar. And then some of the same flavors, obviously, you're not getting that same, like the lychee, like that Asian pear that you would get with the sake, but the subtle sweetness, but also mm -hmm. with it, you know, not being super, you know, sugary on that note, definitely leans that way for me. Yeah. There's and a lot of honey in this. Mm -hmm. And our wines change over time. So if you were drinking this in, 2018 or 2019 after we bottled it, it would taste quite different than it is today. So one thing about our wines, both our reds and whites, um, really start to shine after a few years in bottle. We wish we could hold them back before we start selling them, but it's a financial thing, so we can't. But we always encourage people to sock away a few wines, a few bottles for a few years, and then pull one out every year and taste them, and they will yeah, evolve it's fun. quite yeah, a bit. I haven't been to Oregon yet and I would love to, and that's definitely on my list. But when we went to Napa, that was one of the things that we were told a lot from different um, vineyards that we visited was, you know, this, this wine is one that you're going to want to keep in your wine fridge for a couple of years mm -hmm. before you open it. And I like had never thought about that because most of the time, if you're not educated on why you would do that, you would think like, yeah, I'll just crack it open. But the flavors build up so much and the complexities really come out over those couple of years. And we've been like, now it's probably been three or four years and we're still opening bottles from there and it'll be the same bottle, but it will taste better. <laughs> so I believe that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And yes, yeah. please come visit us. It'd be cool. Oh, we'd love to have you. And I guess I keep forgetting. I need, if I say Portland, I need to say Oregon because I'm <laughs> Boston. You know, I'm, I'm from far Portland, far Portland. <laughs> yeah, Nick, we always talk about that. The, we, the other Portland. Nick lived oh, up right, there right. for a while. If you think you're from Portland and you're Boston, they'll say oh, they're you're from Portland, Maine. Maine. Oh, I want to go to Portland, Maine, too. Portland, Maine is amazing. I we lived there for three years before moving back to Massachusetts this year. Oh, and cool. I miss it and I want to go back every day. It <laughs> is <laughs> such an awesome city. We need to do a Portland trip because there's also a Portland in England. Oh, we'll so hit all the Portland. Portland's. Well, Portland, the whole Maine podcast on Portland. Portland, England. This is kind Portland, of a Oregon. weird little side note, but I was reading this article once. Someone sent it to me when I was moving up to Portland. It was called like A Tale of Two Cities. And it was all about how the guy that actually started Portland, Maine also uh -huh. started Portland, Oregon. So that's why a lot of the, what they say, the cities have two very similar vibes to them. You know, yep. a lot of arts, a lot of great like craft foods and drinks and everything. But I guess it's, a you know, the same founder of the two cities and same character. Well, this is a debate. That's true. But there were two guys here. And one guy, one guy's name was Lovejoy. And there's a street and they're all in alphabetical order. And the other guy was Pettigrove. And I don't remember which was which. But one said, nope, we're naming it Portland. And the other guy said, nope. We're naming it Boston. Mm -hmm. And they tossed a coin and your Portland guy won. There you go. And now we have two Portlands. That's right. And by the way, we're totally on subject. I always say that wine is WD-40 for conversation. And when you go, when you quit talking about the wine and laughing and talking about things like this, the wine's doing its job. I love that. Oh, yeah. It's true. Wine isn't just about wine. Wine is like everything. Yes. Brings people together. Absolutely. Even people from Portland, Maine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think on the Goritz Tremeter, it's it's funny that we think about that, right? Like, I think, and I don't know if this is really just in the U.S., but a lot of times we gravitate towards the wines that we're familiar with and the, like mm -hmm. you said, the names that are just everybody knows this wine, right? Everybody knows this type, but they don't know that, you know, not all white wines are sweet and not all rosés are sweet. And there's just such a huge spectrum, but even 
my my husband when we went to um Napa is like he never drank white wine and he wouldn't drink it he always said it's too sweet I don't like it you know and we went and it's you start trying them because you know they're putting mm-hmm. them in front of you and they're part of these tastings and you start to realize not all white wines are very sweet like you know you, you're thinking like sickly sweet like something that's like mm-hmm. juice it's 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 so not the case I mean there's so many amazing white wines with such great complexities and I think I wish more people would be open to trying them. And I, and I think that's what you get from, you know, Nick and I obviously have those experiences with you and our guests and we love that. But um, if you're not familiar with wine, I think the best thing to do is really to go in person and sit down and talk to people because mm-hmm. you don't really understand it otherwise. Yep. And it's, you, you know, I've been kind of dealing with this. I've been getting back into cigars and, you know, I've been to a shop and I want to tell somebody my palate and I don't know a whole lot. And I found this kid, he's like in his mid early twenties, but he gets my palate and he talks about it like wine and he, he's not condescending. He doesn't judge me for not knowing all the right words. And I think when you're getting into wine, if you can find somebody that listens to you, that doesn't shove what they want down your throat, but respects you, doesn't, you know, make you feel like it's not condescending. It's a super helpful thing. There's a lot of information on Instagram now, and there's a lot of like wine folly, for example, it's this gal and she does like literally two minute overviews. Like I just saw one today on Chianti and she talked about the region in Italy and the different flavor profiles of Chianti and when to drink it. And it just gives you this little overview. And she's like, go to your store, your retail shop and ask for a Chianti and try it with something with tomato sauce or something Italian. And you just kind of learn bit by bit. It's not like you want to learn, sit down and learn everything because wine is overwhelming. There is so much to wine. And when you start learning about wine, you start realizing how little you know about it. Mm. I mean, there's just a whole world of just German wines. And we just happen to know the German wines better because we've been to Germany many times. We've had a lot of German wines. We have sat down with German families and have their wines so we're pretty knowledgeable about it and all the different predicate system but that's just one tiny little nugget then you can start getting french wine oh my god we have so much i have so much more to learn about french wine and we're going to be going to alsace in 2024 and visit some wineries we've been to northern italy we want to go to the cool climate regions and it's just i mean it goes stop learning it could there's czech wine there's ukrainian wine Georgian wine, Georgian wine, Russian wine, um, you know, all over the Balkans, Croatia, Bulgaria. There's like Ur- Uruguay has really cool wines. I mean, if you like to travel or you want to learn about other places and if you really want to get crazy with it, go online and find a bottle of wine from Uruguay and cook some an Uruguayan meal. You're halfway there. And like sometimes they're like, well, we're kind of crazy, like we'll like get in something, we'll print out some poetry from a place and yeah. read the poetry, you know? Oh, and I was going to say something too about trying all these things, learning what you like. But I think one of the most beneficial things in the world is enjoying things you don't like. If you haven't had a certain type of food and you order it, don't send it back and try to get that shit for free. You know, it figure out why you don't like it. And cross it off, I've had that. And I don't like it because it's too salty. Because we learn a lot about ourselves, understanding what we like and why we don't like what we don't like. And push yourself a little bit. Like cross, go out of your comfort zone and order something that you think like, oh, I've never had that before, but I'll try it. You know, and same with wine. Don't keep buying the same wine that you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with comfort food and drinking your favorite Merlot. But um, but experiment a little bit and you don't have to spend a lot of money either. There's so many great European wines that are so inexpensive, a lot cheaper sometimes, many times actually than, um, you know, California or Oregon or Washington wines. Mm-hmm. So I say go out there and experiment. I definitely agree with that. And I myself, I'm more of a, uh, a whiskey drinker more than anything. Ooh, and... We love that too. <laughs> what, what, what kind of whiskey do you like? So uh, I'm all over the map. It really depends. But primarily, I would say I drink more scotch than anything else. Mm-hmm. Rye would be the second. Bourbon would be the third for me if I had to rank them. So I'm getting into scotch. Tell me what you think I should be drinking. That is a loaded question. So 
whenever it depends on who I'm talking to. So whenever I have someone that's just starting to get into it, and maybe you've been a bourbon drinker, a great scotch that I would recommend that you try to, to kind of transition over would be something like a Dalmore 12, because it's okay. very similar, similar to bourbons when it, with its characteristics, but it's got more of those delicate scotch notes. The last thing I would do is recommend something super peaty, anything from Isla that's going to be that sort of, they call them smoke monsters or peat monsters, uh, because your palate, you have to adjust to that. You have to build up to that level of peat. And once you do it, it's the same thing. I've told this story many times uh, on this podcast before, but when I originally started getting into whiskey, you start with the basics. You start with Wild Turkey 101. You start with Jack Daniels, and then you branch off, and you branch off. Mm -hmm. And eventually you work your way up to a point where you can have barrel picks. You can have uh, more cask strength whiskeys because you build your tolerance up to even a high alcohol percentage, mm -hmm. which is another barrier with scotch because a lot of the bottles you have be 55 to 60% alcohol. And if you're not used to that, that's all you'll mm -hmm. taste. You won't taste the scotch. So it really depends. Do you put a little water in it when they're at that high proof? I always try it straight first and yeah, then I'll yeah. use the dropper. We actually, so I'm part of a, a whiskey club, Strength and Scotch, and they were on our podcast before they had their own podcast. And that's how I started actually getting into whiskey by cool. listening to them. And I joined this uh, whiskey club with them and we haven't done one in a couple months, but we'll pick a bottle or they'll do samplers and we'll, you know, we'll try a few different ones. But that's always the experience that I've had. You try it without the water, then you try it with the water and you see the difference because it does change and it does open up, but it's cool to Crazy. be able to experience the before and after. And that's episode 65 for anybody listening. <laughs> I'll put What's it in that? the show notes. It's episode 65. We're almost at a hundred. You guys are, you guys are with us this year in our, uh, they're what third season, Nick. So we're, we're really moving, but um, episode 65, if you wanted just to hear a little bit about scotch obviously uh they're very specialized in that so it's a great lesson noted anyway yeah it, it helps my wine making too you know drinking scotch i also really like rum and i wouldn't say i'm an expert i've been smoking my pipe tobacco pipe we have other things to smoke in oregon i think you guys have that in, in massachusetts now too and me and, and me <laughs> But and also cigars, and it's crazy that if you take notes and you really think about everything you're doing, one really does translate to the other. I just basically like to eat and drink. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> the moral of the story, what I was getting at, is uh, when I got into whiskey and when I got into craft beer, it was the same way. I always buy something different. I can probably count on one hand the number of whiskeys that I've rebought because I always want to try something else. And I'm also mm -hmm. not a heavy drinker. So almost every bottle that I have, there's very few bottles that I've finished because I'll buy a new one, then I'll try that. So I have this big extensive collection that I've built up of quarter drinking whiskey bottles because I just keep buying new ones. But uh -huh. I've never had two that taste exactly alike. You can mm -hmm. always tell the difference if you put them side by side. So it's hard we to probably classify. Should, we probably should get back to wine talk. I'm always hijacking things and taking them into off, off the road. But so when I do progress on my scotch drinking, what are some ones that really tug at your heart? My number one bottle that this is one that I have rebought multiple times, Highland Park 12. Anything from Highland Park? Uh -huh. uh, I think he has the bottle and he wants to show it to you. So, so, so do I get to go straight to the head of the class? Is it this guy? You it's do. the uh, the Viking honor. <laughs> yep, that's the one. I like it a lot so far. Excellent. I've tried one of my favorite scotches that I've had, and then we can go back to talking about your Merlot next. Uh, <laughs> it's the Highland Park you 18. Know. The yeah. Highland Park 18 <laughs> is the top of my pinnacle. That's the best scotch that I've tried so far. Oh, well, I'll definitely look for it. Thank you. So tell us more on? about the uh, the Merlot. We can uh, get back to talking about the wine here. Um, Except for, I think it's Pinot Noir. It's a Pinot Noir. <laughs> oh, Bianca. Oh, I, was by... I was trying to sneak it in, but I think I gave Nick the label. That, I mean, Bianca's we could fault. switch to Merlot. It oh, is my fault. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, Nick. Okay, so, uh... so we make a lot of Pinot Noir. And uh, one of the reasons is because, well, Pinot is really big in Oregon. It's a great growing uh, 
atmosphere and terrain for it. Um, but what I think what Barnaby likes about it the most is it reflects the terroir. You said mm -hmm. that Pinot is like one of those grapes oh. that just absorbs. And I like this one the most because we planted it together. Oh, yes, we did. This is um, the Alcy Vineyard we planted in 05. We don't. And we didn't know what we were doing at the time. Oh, well, we, I knew I asked enough questions, but I kind of didn't know. I mean, it turned but this out is well. kind of a, <laughs> It turned out okay. Yeah. This is kind of cool because we don't make a lot of wine with the fruit we grow, but two of the wines on this table, this is rare, were planted with our hands. Um, so let's talk about Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir to me, it, yes, it's a red wine, but think about the other red wines. Think about a red wine, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Malbec. Those wines are basically black wines. And if you look at this, I don't know what the lighting's like, but this is a little bit darker than a rosé. And that's a natural color of Pinot Noir. So Pinot Noir, in a way, is, a, is not a rosé, but it has a lot of white wine qualities, as well as red wine qualities in its precision, its silkiness, its agility, allows it to show soil and weather and climate. And the, you know, if there's a scent of a forest in the vineyard and it's always blowing through with the breeze, because it's a more delicate red wine, it allows it to say a lot more. Just like if we're in a room and a bunch of people are talking and the big mouth of the loud voice shuts up, then there might be a, a really smart person saying something cool pretty quietly. And I think that's what Pinot Noir is in relationship to terroir. And even if you take like a Pinot Noir uh, cluster and put it next to a Merlot or a Cabernet, the Cabernet and Merlot, they have such thick skin and there's so much tannin in it. So to make red wine, you crush the juice and then they soak on the skins and that's what makes the red color. Uh, Pinot Noir, you can soak it on the skins for two weeks and it's gonna be ruby red rather than sort of this purpley thing. And I think for a long time, especially in like the 80s and 90s, there was a time when producers were making a bigger style Pinot and this happened- With this, chemicals this, this and dye. Well, and cold soaks and, mm -hmm. you know, and that was happening a lot when we first started making wine. So Barnaby was in a shared facility and I don't mean to take this story away from you, but um, so he's making his Pinot and all the guys are tasting each other's wines and they're like, wow, this is really good Barnaby, but you're not gonna be able to sell this. And he said, well, why is that? And he's like, well, cause it's not big enough. It doesn't have any oak flavors. You just, you not to throw some oak chips at it and bulk it up and kind of spoofify it. People want 95 point Pinots, which was this whole rating system that um was done out of cal what was that guy's name again oh, Robert, Robert. sorry and yeah. we're not a, we're not yeah, against we're not, this it, yeah it's just that it's, it was people thought that pinot needed to be a bigger wine and what made pinot better as if it was bigger and juicier. and if these are the only pinots people have ever tasted they assume they're all like this but you know i'm like if i moved to a town and there were like six hard rock radio stations and don't get me wrong because i used to have a punk band i like loud crazy music but maybe i'd be the guy that would start a jazz station not that there's nothing there's nothing wrong with hard rock but i was this guy that was sort of the the rebel i was going against the trends of wines getting bigger and more alcoholic and more oaky and what was interesting is these winemakers that he was with all really liked the wines they just thought well if you you know if you're going to make wine like this it's just not going to sell or it's going to be that much harder to sell and there was one winemaker who was from who's canadian french mm -hmm. And she was in the shared facility and she said, Barnaby, your wines taste really delicious. I think you're onto something really good. And he's like, yeah, but everyone keeps telling me I need to throw oak chips and kind of bulk it up. And I'm not, it's not going to sell if I make this style of wine. And she said, Barnaby, what kind of wines do you like to drink? He's like, well, wines that taste like the one I'm making. And she's like, well, there you go. You need to make wines that you love, that mean something to you. It's coming from your heart. Don't make something isn't what you believe in. I mean, don't make a wine that you think is going to sell. Then why are we making wine? We should make something else because then we can make a lot more money selling something yeah. else than wine. And that's kind of how our style started. And we were sort of, I'd say on the forefront of 
moving more towards these leaner, higher acid, food-driven wines rather than sort of the velvety, silky. Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with it. I just want to say that again. But it's our style. This is what we do. It's what we do. And I think a lot of people that taste our wines, you know, think they taste more of like European Burgundy wines. or Alsace. Or, yeah. And the world has changed a lot. We're talking about where the Willamette Valley was in 2008. Mm -hmm. And we were pretty fringe. Now we're basically mainstream. The pendulum has kind of switched, swung so far back that I would say, like if you go to a restaurant in New York and order this wine or Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> there, are, there aren't two Bostons. They could have named Portland Boston. I think there is a Boston somewhere, but, in but there's the Boston Harbor. There's Washington. a Boston in Virginia. Yeah. I'm, there we yeah. go. There we go. That was kind of making a self-deprecating joke because I'm from the other Portland. But anyway, yeah, I think that now if you go to a restaurant, our Pinot Noir is going to be like the same body as a lot of other Pinot Noirs in the menu. Things, things well, there's have There's a changed. whole new like natty wine movement, but well, that's a whole nother story. So. Well, let, let's talk about this wine. So this is a little bit unusual for the Willamette Valley. It's not from the Willamette Valley. It's actually west. It's the only coastal Pinot in Northern Oregon. Which so means, Valley is an ADA, just in case uh, your listeners don't know. So it's an Oregon region. viticultural area. And lots of parts of Oregon and California have ADAs, but there are areas where, where there's planted vines that are not in an ADA. So you can't say Willamette Valley, you can only say Oregon. But anyway, so this is a very unique place because it's quite a bit colder. It takes a lot longer to ripen the fruits. When all the other Pinot Noir has been picked, this fruit's hanging out with mother nature, trying to get riper, mm -hmm. has a lot of time to develop a lot of complex, nuanced flavors. And, you know, we talk about terroir. Well, this happens to fall into terroir of logistics. We went down with a truck and enough pick bins to, I don't know, pick four tons of fruit. We didn't have enough. And we we're so busy at the winery, the fruit hung an extra two weeks. So we... Went to harvest, in only November. harvested like three quarters of it, and a quarter was left. I just want to make that clear. So, so this wine is made with the second harvest. That's why it's called in November. Ultra. And it was a crazy, crazy thing. That fruit was so beautiful and so ripe two weeks earlier. But when we picked it, we knew it was going to be one of the most special wines we've made. So, And it's 2014, so it has nearly 10 years mm -hmm. now. It's very good. And I think that I can see what you mean, where it's very good for uh, as a food wine. I think I, you know, I love charcuterie and I love putting boards together. And I also love to just have like a really nice home cooked meal. And I think that this, because of its really nice light nature, goes with all sorts of flavors. Um, we had it with spaghetti and meatballs <laughs> last night um, and it was delicious. And I, it just, you know, and I, I totally see what you mean with you know, it, I do rarely see such a, like a light color of wine mm -hmm. and I, it was different and it was really good. So thank you. I love that. Yeah. So um, talk, let's talk about these guys. So what are the different ones we have? <laughs> and let's talk about the flavors. The Lucanica. 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 You guys are going to Oh my God, me. I know. He's going to be like, oh my God. <laughs> I think it's Lucanica or Lucanica. Oh, it's definitely Greek. Okay. And it's definitely it tasty. Greek. It's really good. So are you supposed to eat this? This I like the skin with the bloom. Thing? I really, That's like fungus. I, I mean, of course, yeah, it's I don't like know. I, I feel it off. Oh, I've been eating the skin. You have? Yeah. yeah I've so eaten it as well. <laughs> and it did, there's something in that skin, that mold, that really reacts nicely with the wine and brings out honey flavors and... Mm. it's just like cheese you have to get eat the whole thing for the like whole I said, thing. i'm gonna eat her skins i'm gonna eat her skins <laughs> like i'm gonna tell eli should actually sell this stuff peel it off i'll buy it for like a hundred dollars a pound <laughs> so do you know how long it takes to make something like this like how long does the meat cure and hang it's and gotta be like a year or something what a year i mean it's so dehydrated it's so dried out and do you know and it has to be like a, a fermentation do you have any idea? I don't I'm know. Like, I'm not oh. sure, and I'm looking right now, and I'm, uh, I'm oh. looking on their website. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool to see the pictures. 
sure Eli can answer a lot of these questions. But I wonder, so do you think it's the meat that makes it taste different from one to one? Another the spices to the seasoning. Mm -hmm. I, I think, think it's probably the spices too. I think one of them, yeah. I think it was the Lucanica. That's the way that I've been pronouncing that one. Mm -hmm. There was right almost there. like a really cheesiness to it. Mm -hmm. While one of them, which I think was the Pinocchioni, is very like peppery. Uh -huh. Yep. You mm -hmm. can certainly tell the difference between them. Mm. So we're boss. Do you think anybody from that band Morphine's listening right now? <laughs> oh, or like the cars? What else? What, what are the bands? Or the band Boston? Maybe. Oh, yeah, the, they're probably the MIT. That was crowd. the first band I've ever seen. Really? Like a real rock concert. Yeah, it was Boston. I told you that. That's cool. I was 14. Aerosmith, they're from Boston. Oh, are they? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're going to get our asses kicked <laughs> by the Boston people now. But well, I, I actually saw. Do you know uh, the club, the Middle East? It's I think it's in Cambridge Square. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, when I was when I was hanging out in Boston, '93, I found that place, and I kind of would go in there, there every night, and I caught morphine, and um, it was a record release party for uh, Cure for Pain. I got invited back to the party wow. just because I had good luck, <laughs> but I had to fly back to Portland at five in the morning, and. Um, I was a big mistake. I didn't, I didn't go to the, the party. I made the flight. I didn't go to the party. I was a little bit ashamed. Oh. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your rock star past. Oh, I was Any never a rock star. <laughs> like I, I mean, you could probably talk to my mom, like after school, you know, I'd jump out in the kitchen and try and shred. Um, I, I had a punk band called Flem Thrower. And we played like Satyricon, which is kind of, Portland's CBGBs. I wouldn't say we're very good, but I think some of the songs are pretty funny. Um, I played, I've did different things in the band, guitar, bass, you know, singing, or I guess screaming. Um, but it was- And a, he recorded it. Yeah. It's on a CD or something, right? Or a tape. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's like maybe- We've had a few guests on here that have had uh, pasts like that. So we had- uh, the Brutality Coffee, guys. Have you heard of Brutality Coffee? Oh. Uh -uh. So B-R-E-W-tality coffee. Oh. They <laughs> come from a music background. And they actually, after we had them on the podcast, that was back in probably 2020. They were one of our earlier episodes. And they now have a partnership with Motley Crue, making like Motley Crue coffees, themed coffees oh, and everything. Goodness. Widowmaker Brewing was another one. They had a... <laughs> music background they had bands but we've actually seen that quite a few times when people come up and they have those back oh um one of our very first episodes smith Devereux wines are you familiar with them uh -huh. smith Devereux wines the uh they're very connected with the music scene as well and they were one of our very first episodes as well there are so many musicians that make wine <laughs> um the guy from tool has a vineyard in arizona yep. right or, Mexico, a winery. or in a vineyard, winery yeah. yeah uh who else i know there's a bunch metallica well, has a whiskey yeah okay. we have a motorhead wine but i think it's yeah, kind of a cliche wine. that and red we did a red fang wine with do you know the band red fang out of portland they're like a stoner metal band. They play like big arenas, like they tour Europe. And I mean, they have a pretty big name, but we uh, partnered with them and made a wine. I think that, oh. they, you know, it was what it was like <laughs> when I was in high school, everybody had a band. And those kinds of people, kids don't do it as much. People, I think, are much more interested in culinary, fermentation, craft food, and People that were in music, there's no career in it, or you realize it's not going anywhere. Making wine is the same kind of expression. It's so or hard cooking to make money. food. It's a, yeah, it's no money in it, but you get to be as weird as you want to be. And it's a way to put your crazy ideas in other people's heads. So there's there's a super correlation between the two. Well, what's that joke? How do you make a million dollars in the wine industry? Start with two million. I was gonna say start a <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> Well, it's true. You have to be creative. You also have to think outside of the box. You have to be open to different, you know, experiences mm -hmm. and flavors. And a lot of, you know, I, I think everybody is just like very different. And I, that's what is so beautiful about it, right? That's what makes, I think, the food and beverage industry so unique to other industries. It's just, 
you get so many different personality types, so many very interesting backgrounds. And that's why Nick and I love interviewing everybody because everyone's so different. We always get different stories and you just learn so much about how people get where they are and, and the passion that goes into it. So it's a beautiful thing. Totally. Everyone has a story. Here's a, another question for you. We can leave it off with this one after if you like. I know we've had you for a while. What's the most outside of the box thing that you've tried with winemaking and did it work or did it not work? Um, do you think that would be the candy mushroom, the red Gewurz demeanor, mm. um, the yard wine? I'm trying to think. Um, no, the cactus. <laughs> well, there's with us, there's a lot of things. Oh, oh the wine you're drinking right now. Okay. Okay. So this wine is a single vineyard. It's planted on a steep cliff of all rock. And it's kind of like a bowl shape. And it amplifies the heat. And right in the middle of it, for some reason, I planted some cactus plants. And, and it's really hot. And it could grow really quickly. Though. And the cactus plants put well. out fruit. And I thought, you know what? Um, I think they call them... Um, they're flowers, aren't they? Nepales, I think they're called, or or in English, I think they're called uh, prickly prickly pears. Prickly okay. pears, yep. And so I just picked a, like buckets of prickly pears, and I threw it in with the wine. So this like this riesling yeah. is like one tenth of one percent prickly pear wine. I forgot about that. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think I'm gonna now I'm gonna have to retry the wine. Yeah. Well, it definitely worked. I can confirm that. This definitely didn't throw <laughs> this off. That's one of my favorites, these three. I actually, I really love that Riesling. We probably should it's say if you have special. a cactus allergy, don't drink this one. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Warning sign. I don't know how many people would know if they have a cactus yeah, allergy. Yeah, it's not very common, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> you know, it just maybe people don't know. Maybe like, you know, one in four. I mean, we'll find out. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't really tell it's in there, but that's the story. It probably makes really... a difference. And if it wasn't there, you could taste the difference. And then you'd be... Well, how much did you throw in there? Oh, I don't know, like 30 pounds or something. 30 pounds. Wow. But it, they're bright colored. And when they were soaking in with the skins... I remember that. They were pink. The, the wine yeah. was pink at first because of the prickly pears. Nepales, I believe, also you could call oh, okay. it. Good people corrected me when they say prickly pear. So the secret's out then. <laughs> yeah yeah Not we've done so secret it. anymore <laughs> exposed on the encore corner podcast <laughs> in the riesling i'm going to say one more thing that barnaby's done that's kind of cool um so one year talking about the gewurztraminer that we love and how some years we get nothing well one year for some reason it produced a huge amount of gewurztraminer like we had like 10 or 11 tons of gewurztraminer fruit came through the door and i said Barnaby, I can't sell that much Gewurz. I mean, it is a little bit hard to sell, no matter how delicious it is. And that's why we still have some 2018 and 2019. I said, you gotta, we gotta think of something. And so he said, okay, I'm gonna make it into a red blend and I'm gonna blend it with Pinot Noir. So we have this red blend that we make. It's 75% Gewurz demeanor, 25% Pinot, co-fermented. So the berries, the fruit are all thrown in together and macerate on their skins for about two weeks. And it comes out in this beautiful, vibrant, like light ruby red color. And some years it's a little more pale than others for whatever reason, because it's natural wine, you never know. Um, but it's been one of our most popular wines. And it's a Gewurztraminer Pinot blend. Oh, and I could taste, <laughs> I could taste the prickly pears in here oh, now. Oh boy, here I we found go. it. I found <laughs> it. Um, and you, you know what it is? It's it's very subtle, but it's sort of like juicy fruit or a little bit of a bubblegum fruitiness on the palate. Hmm. So I would tell anybody, we made one vintage of this with a cactus. If you want to have the only riesling in the world with prickly pears. You can tell your grandchildren you have this wine. Why haven't we marketed that? Like we completely forgot about that. You have to start we numbering like, those bottles now. Yeah, really. We'd only made a few, a few bottles too. It's like, it's sort of like a bubble gum, but there's another um, fruit. Kind of like bubble gum meets like canned peach. And it's on the palate. Not your prickly pear. All right. Yep. Done and done. Well, we like it. 
Second, I'm sending out a press release tomorrow. Yeah, hurry up. It's all gone. It's almost gone. Hurry yeah. up. Mm, I can't stop eating this. It's a loony. I know. It's mm. I, I really, so really do love it. And, you know, obviously, we weren't well rehearsed to give any speeches about this. Other than we passionately love it. I'll tell you what. Like, all you know, back in the day, I'd be driving the truck around to the vineyard. And my lunch would be... Oh, yeah. One of these salumis. And I felt like Ernest frickin' Hemingway. I felt, you know, like... <laughs> Biting it off and like, sticking You know, so I had a salami in one mouth, cigar in the other. And I thought, you know, that's some masculinity. That's going to impress my wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I put on an ascot and then the, then the show's over. <laughs> oh, and these guys also make a, other things too. They make like duck liver pâtés and yeah. others. I know we bought like all kinds of mooses and oh yeah, yeah. Ooh, so good. I'll be on like uh, trotters from them. Um, yeah, our place is like Disneyland mm -hmm. for like good meats. <laughs> we're definitely going to try to have them on as well. I know yeah, we discussed that so. prior when we were first talking, but we're <laughs> certainly going to reach out and uh, get that coordinated because we definitely want to talk to them a little bit more about how that sausage is made and oh, uh, you know anything else that they have. <laughs> We've had a couple sausage companies on. I don't think anyone has ever liked that joke when I nope. brought them on. So <laughs> I'll try to avoid that. But we haven't had a, a cured sausage like that on, though. It's usually um, Bianco and Pig Rock. It's like fresh sausage. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, sausage. right. Yeah. Which are also delicious, but they're different. Also <laughs> very local around here. So they've yes. probably never heard of Bianco yes, or Pig that's Rock. That's probably true. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, I think everyone would enjoy the wine, so everyone should check it out. We'll put the link to the episode in the show notes, or to the website in the show notes. You're going to be listening to the episode um, in your social as well. I think your personalities are so fun, and it really comes across in all of your social media. So definitely give Teutonic a follow wherever you are on social. Um You'll see a lot of what we talked about today. And I also saw that you do a lot of fun events and things for um, people who are local. So definitely worth giving you a, a visit if you're in the area. And Nick and I will look forward to hopefully getting out there and giving you a visit in person eventually. <laughs> Please. That would be so oh, fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having right. us. Again, yeah. thank you both for uh, joining us tonight. We had so much fun. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers. Take yeah. care. Cheers. uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening.